0: The Lamb of God who came to, uh, came to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, that came to uh, uh, bear our sin in our place. Uh, again, if, if you're a guest with us, I, I always like to make sure you know what's going on here. And so there is a uh, colored insert in the service folder, and I always encourage people at this time to, to take that out, whether you're writing on it or at least having it on your lap. I think it can be a, a, a good thing and um, a good way to, to follow along. Um, As I said at the very beginning of our service, uh, we're concluding this three-week series called um, Shadows, and let's put it this way, you probably guessed this, but it's not an accident that this series would end um, on the cusp of Holy Week here in which we're at. Um, Holy Week uh, for a Christian, if if you're new to church or just, um, you know, kind of wondering what the the God of the Bible is all about, um, Holy Week is kind of the the central uh, culmination of our hope. It is the the week in which we remember and we celebrate the the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And and it is at the very heart of of why a Christian can be joyful, of why they can be confident about eternity. There's nothing more important than what we'll be remembering and celebrating this coming week. And In fact, the importance of Jesus' uh, death and resurrection can be found just by looking through the Bible and recognizing this. That the entire Bible, the entire Bible is all about Jesus and his death and resurrection. The entire Old Testament points ahead to Jesus. And the New Testament is all about us, what he did, and us waiting for him to come again. And here's the thing. If you don't believe me, that that's true, which you have every reason to believe me, okay? But if you don't, there's a better person that you could listen to, and his name is Jesus, and Pastor Matt has referenced this uh, the, the first two weeks, but on the afternoon of Easter, there were two Christ followers, two, two Christians who were walking along a road, and they were just all just beside themselves because all this stuff had happened, and they couldn't explain it, and they were just down. They, Jesus had died, the tomb was now empty, and here comes Jesus, and he's walking on the road with them, but they don't recognize him. Either, you know, as God, maybe he made it so they couldn't recognize him, or maybe they were just so distraught that that they weren't seeing clearly. We we don't know, but they didn't recognize him. And they start telling him about all of this. And and then Jesus goes about to tell them what was going on. But he didn't just tell them. You know what he did? Um, Here's a verse from Luke chapter 24. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that is, a way of saying, using the Old Testament, Jesus explained to these Christians what was said in all the scriptures about himself. See the cool centrality of Jesus found throughout the entire Bible? It's all about Jesus. So here's what that means. All of those things in the Old Testament we think about, Adam and Eve and Moses and the bronze snake and and like we've looked at last week and, and Abraham and Jacob and all of that, these are not just things God preserved so we could find some moral truth out of it. There is that in them, but he preserved it because these things point ahead to Jesus to see how God guided the history of the Old Testament so that it was the perfect time for Jesus to be born, to see these little prophecies about how your king will come to you you know, gentle and riding on a donkey see how this event of having the Israelites look at a bronze serpent like we looked at last week was a, a precursor, a shadow of how Jesus would be raised up. And so today, as we think about that centrality of Jesus, we're going to look at one last event before we get into Holy Week. And uh, before we do that, uh, a little bit of an introduction to, uh, to our main theme today, and uh, it's funny. Last night, uh, one of our um, members had asked if how our uh, vacation went because we went to visit my parents about a week ago, and she said, "Oh, you don't need to tell me. I'm sure it'll come up in your sermons." <laughs> and uh, sure enough, my very first illustration off of vacation was about vacation. So she's a prophet, I guess. I don't know, but uh, so um, so we went to visit my parents in Orlando. All right, and. Uh, and this time that we went, we didn't have an opportunity to you know, do some of the things we've done in the past that most of you do when you go to Orlando, like Disney and Universal, which was okay, because we've had a chance, we try to go visit them about every other year. But instead, my, my dad, who, you know, having been there 17 years, speaks now as if he's a native Floridian, but he's really from Wisconsin, he's not a native Floridian. Um, but he, he was saying, you know, since you're here, we should do some things that Floridians do. And we should do things, you know, the non-touristy stuff. And so there's this, this opportunity to go on a canoe trip. And so we went on a canoe trip. Now, the thing is, as we were driving, my dad, who's you know, always out for an adventure, um, said, and guess what? As we're you know, paddling canoes, if we're lucky, if we're lucky, we might see some alligators. And, and right there, I'm like, if we're lucky, if we're lucky, I'm going to be canoeing next to alligators with only a paddle to valiantly save my family, right? Um, If we're lucky, I mean, alligators, great if, uh, you know, if they're um, at the zoo or on TV, but I don't want to be canoeing next to an alligator. So here's a picture of uh, our canoe uh, trip, and as you can see, really. Beautiful setting, pretty day. It doesn't even really look like Florida in a lot of ways, just how beautiful that little river was. And if you can see, do you see how the river, there's like, uh, it looks like it's pretty obvious where the canoes should go. Do you see that? Like, it, I mean, it's not pretty obvious. It is obvious where the canoes should go, and that's where we're supposed to be canoeing. But my dad, he hears like this, this sound, a grunt, uh, so to speak, and he's like, I think that's an alligator. And so guess what happens next? Next picture, please. There's my dad and my oldest two children who are going to look along the shoreline for this alligator. Now, you can't see facial expressions, but here's what... My dad's like this. My kids are like... I mean, talking with them afterwards, you know... And I would have felt the same way. They did not want to be where my dad was going, but my dad was in charge. Grandpa was rowing and he was, you know, he was directing. And so they're out looking for this alligator. Well, as you know, um, with any stream or river, and this one didn't have a strong current, but it did have a current. And so, you know, it's hard to go against the current. And sometimes it takes you places where you don't necessarily want to be. That's what happened to this canoe right here. Here's the next picture, and they, the current is kind of taking them into what was this kind of ended up being a dead end. So just think about this. So you've got happy grandpa, scared kids, and there's, you know, shore to the left, brush to the right, and then a tree that had fallen over in front of them as they went further into this alcove, and now they're stuck. It's a dead end, and... There could be an alligator, you know, (laughs) roaming around and swimming around. (laughs) And thankfully, they didn't see the alligator. But I know for a fact, talking with Chloe and Ezra afterwards, that they were really happy when they finally got out of that dead end, okay? As I would have been as well. Now, I wonder if you in your life have ever felt a little boxed in By the circumstances of life, kind of like that canoe was. Have you ever felt kind of like there's these walls that are not allowing you to go where you want to go? And these examples of this can be really big, they might be really small. Um, Here's some that I was thinking of. Sometimes I, I talk with people who feel that way about their career, that they're thankful that they have a job, but honestly, it's not what they thought it would be, and it's not really, uh, I hear this word a lot, fulfilling for them, and, and so they, they'd like to change it, but at the same time, they're boxed in because um, they have a family, let's say, and, and, and they need to support their family, and to make a career change is going to make that really difficult, and so they feel stuck. Um, sometimes... Um, we, we hear that uh, about um, other things. Uh, sometimes uh, we hear that with uh, adults uh, who have adult children, parents with adult children. And uh, they see some of the decisions that their children are making as they go off on their own. And uh, frankly, they're, they're not excited about those decisions. And yet at the same time, um, they're not sure what to do. You know, they should say some things. But if they say too much, they might lose an audience, and so what do you do? And you feel kind of boxed in in your parenting relationship with your kids. Sometimes it might be marriage people feel boxed in. Like they know on the one hand that they've made promises and they're supposed to be with this person for the rest of their life. But on the other hand, you know, it's really hard and they're, they're not really happy and it doesn't seem like there's any hope and so they feel boxed in. Maybe it's, it's health. Not sure what's wrong, but I'm not getting better. <laughs> and on and on and on. Um, our first fill-in here, um, that... The circumstances of life at times can make us feel like we're, we're boxed in. Like there's these walls and we want to get someplace, but yet we can't get there. And so we feel stuck and there's an alligator swimming around. <laughs> when might it pop up? What's going to happen? Um, if you are someone new to church or new to Jesus, I think sometimes sin can make us feel that way. And even if you're not new to Jesus, you've you've felt this before. So I think the the natural way to feel better about your relationship with God is to uh, work hard to be good. That's what happened. That's what comes naturally. Um, have you ever thought or found someone who, who thought, "Here's a little small window into this type of thinking, like that um, this week didn't go good, so I better go to church next week because then the the week will go better." Um, it's kind of a little glimpse into trying to earn God's favor in just a little bit of a way. But, but the problem is, is that type of thinking, let's use the example that I just raised of going to church, it, it doesn't work because you'll never feel truly confident because, you know, you go to church a particular week and then that's a bad one. Oh, so maybe, maybe it's two weeks out of four. Maybe that's what God wants. Or or is it three out of four? Or maybe it's all four? And what about the Wednesdays in Lent? Do those count? Those don't count because that's that's on Wednesday. It's not the weekend. You know, what I'm saying is when we try to earn God's love, feeling boxed in by our sin, get out of the box by our own or on our own, we'll never feel confident because there's always more we could do. There's always a... Another rung on the ladder we could climb. So today, as as we close out this uh, series, um, I want to look at a section of Scripture that's going to teach us about what to do and how to think when we feel boxed in. When we feel boxed in by sin, when we feel boxed in by the circumstances of life. And um, this section of Scripture is one that happened um, about... uh, about 1,500 years or so before Jesus. Uh, Some of you might know this, but um, the Israelites got the, the Jewish nation that had lived in Israel... Uh, for a time, they lived actually in the country of Egypt. And the, the reason for that was that there had been a famine in Israel, and Egypt had food, and the Israelites had an avenue of, of, of an invitation to come live there. And so they did. And uh, for a while, they were treated, that is the Israelites, like honored guests. But for about 400 years, the nation of Israel... Um, were uh, subject to hard labor as slaves. They were turned into cheap, free work and labor and and lived much of those 400 years um, as slave labor. Well, it was never God's intention that the Israelites would stay in Egypt as slaves forever, that they would eventually come back to the country of Israel. And so God, after about 400 years, got the wheels turning a little bit by getting it on Pharaoh's heart that, you know, probably be good for him to let the Israelites leave. And for some of you who know this account, you know that he didn't do that right away. And so God sent 10 bad things to Egypt. We know them in the Bible as 10 plagues that just devastated the people and devastated the land. And after the 10th one, which was the worst one, Pharaoh's like, all right, white flag, um, I will let them go, okay? Um, Get out of here, Israelites, And so that is where we we kind of pick up things that the Israelites are now on their way out of Egypt, heading east towards Israel, and we pick it up in Exodus 14, verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had indeed left or fled, Pharaoh, the king, and his officials changed their minds about them and said, "'What have we done? We've let the Israelites go and have lost their services.'" Um, now, you've got to understand, this was not a small group of, like, 400 slaves. Um, we know from the Bible that the group of people that left numbered about 2 million. So, I did a quick Google search. Twin Cities metro area, you know, all the suburbs included, about 3 million people or so. So, two-thirds the size of the entire Twin Cities metro area are traveling, okay? Two million slaves are leaving the economy, Free labor, and Pharaoh, even despite all the plagues, is like, you know what, what have we done? This is going to crush the economy. We got to get them back. Next verse, verse 6. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt, with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. And so the Egyptian armies begin to rush after, begin to pursue the Israelites. Now, you've got to understand something then about what happens to the Israelites. As they travel east, something happens. They sort of um, get boxed in. So to the east is part of what we know today as the Red Sea. And two million people were not able to cross that. To the south was a desert preceded by some mountains, which two million people could not get through there. To the north were some uh, Egyptian fortresses and eventually get to the Mediterranean Sea, so they couldn't go north. And now to the west, you've got a really mad king and a whole bunch of slave owners chasing after them. They are boxed in. It reminds me of a canoe boxed in with an alligator running around or or somewhere nearby, potentially. So how did the Israelites react to this? Verse 10. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. And how did they react? They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. So um, before... I get too hard on the Israelites, which I will be a little hard on them in just a moment. But before that, I just want you to raise your hand if you would not have been at least a little bit of fearful in this situation, okay? <laughs> like, like we all would have been a little bit fearful, right? And so fear and concern, as a Christian even, is understandable, To have some fear when you don't know what's going to be happening. To have some concern about the future when you're feeling boxed in. We get it. It's understandable. It happens. But for the Israelites, it didn't stay with fear. Look at the next verse. They said to Moses, "'Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die?' What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, which this is actually a lie. They didn't say this, but they're just really mad. Okay, Leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. You know what happens to the Israelites here? Their fear, which is understandable, turns into despair. Their concern, which is understandable, turns into terror... Which, again, in this instance, makes very little sense. It doesn't make sense because, in part, of this reason. Over the last year, they had seen that God had powerfully moved the king of Egypt to let them go. With a whole bunch of miracles that only could be described as being the result of the power of God. They had seen the power of God at work. And yet, how quickly doesn't concern turn into despair? Can you relate? You know some things about God, you know He's stronger than your situation. Don't you, do you ever let concern turn into despair? I was trying to think, you know, what are some ways to know whether you've, you've crossed the line from concern to despair? There's probably a lot of them, but here's a couple things to think about. Um, if, if you have a really hard time being joyful because of some circumstances in life and this lasts for an extended period of time, You've, you've probably gone from concern, which is understandable, to despair. Um, if, uh, if your nickname at work is Debbie Downer, <laughs> or if, if you're like that cartoon character that has the, the, the storm cloud following them everywhere, and that's how people just know that you're down all the time, or you feel that way, likely you've crossed the line from Concern about something to despair. Um, If you're up at night a lot because you're really worried about stuff, and oftentimes stuff that you cannot control, it is okay to be concerned about those things and go to bed praying about them. But if you cannot sleep because of them, we've probably gone across the line from fear or concern to despair. What did God tell the Israelites in this moment? Verse 14. The Lord will fight for you. All you need to do is be still. Just stand there. (laughs) In part, physically be still. It it more so was a a word that sort of lends them to to calm their heart. To be calm. To calm their soul. (laughs) How do you do that? I mean, you may not have Egyptians running after you, but you may be looking for the right job. You may not have Egyptians following you, but you may be looking for the right relationship. I, how do you be still? Here's something we're going to learn from our text. It's our next fill in. You need to understand this that we don't always translate the circumstances of life. That we think we understand circumstances, but I'm going to tell you, you don't always get it right, and I don't either. Um, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> excuse me, when, um, when our oldest child was uh, like one, between one or two years old, he had uh, had a, a pretty bad flu that... Um, uh, we, we felt like we needed to take him to urgent care for. And the, the nurse or doctor there had said, yeah, sure enough, he was pretty dehydrated. And so he needed, um, they said, to get some fluids through an IV. Now, one and a half, two years old, you know, uh, one and a half or two-year-old arm, right? And they, they need to put an IV in there. And I'll just say this, uh, that wasn't my favorite nurse in the world, uh, as uh, it took her like three or four times to, to get the needle in. And I understand, I mean, I'm Honestly, objectively, but this is my son and, you know, I, he's, he's balling his head off as we keep pricking him. And guess what else was going on at that moment? You think he sat there just, you know, hey, put a needle in me. Um, no, dad was holding him down. Now, how do you think a one or two-year-old computes that? They're sticking me with a needle and dad's holding me down. Do you love me, Dad? What are you doing? Do you even care? And you and I know and understand why a one- or two-year-old might feel that way. We also know that what he's feeling and thinking isn't true, right? There's this backstory to the Egyptians' dead end here. Not the Egyptians, the Israelites' dead end here that I, I, I want to share with you because God has revealed it to us in the first part of chapter 14. Listen to this backstory, to the circumstances they're in. So before they, they got into this sort of dead end, it was God that told Moses to tell the Israelites to turn back from where they were going and encamp near pi between Migdal and the sea. And they are to encamp by the sea directly opposite to Baal-Saphon. So, you mean God told them to go there? Yep. You mean God led them exactly where they were at? Yep. Oh. Why? (laughs) Well, look at verse 4. In the same conversation with Moses, Jesus or God says, I will gain glory for myself through this, through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians and the Israelites will know through this and what's going to happen that I am the Lord. You see, the Israelites were in a position in their lives where they needed a shift of thinking. Because here's the thing for generations, 400 years, they had lived to the glory of their Egyptian slave masters, in a sense. They needed to do what the Egyptian slave master told them to do. They lived to make their Egyptian slave masters happy. And now their past is running after them, literally. Okay, Sometimes you have your past following you. <laughs> they did literally. The past is following them, and they're confronted with the people that they had spent years living to the glory of, their slave masters. And God wants them to confront, to have this confrontation because he wants to change their mind. To not live to the glory of the Egyptians anymore. That's not your master. But to live to the glory of God. So he brings them to a dead end. Do you know what's true about your dead end? Or next. Sometimes God allows us to be boxed in to get our attention. I think it's a it's good to ask the question, who are you a slave to? What's been holding you hostage? Is it some team you want to be on? And all your focus of life is that? Is it a certain level on the honor roll or a certain college you want to get into and that just consumes you like a slave master? <laughs> is it career? Is it popularity amongst uh, the neighborhood friends? Is it, uh, is it money? I don't know. But oftentimes, if, if we think about it, we've, we've allowed earthly pursuits to almost become our master. And, and we do what it dictates we should do to gain whatever earthly-wise we're looking to gain. And sometimes God allows us to be boxed in to get our attention and say, hey, where is that leading you? Where's that going for you? You know, those things are okay, but don't let them be your master. And when we've done that long enough without any success, Pursuing those things, we begin to realize the box that we're in, that we need a rescue. Listen, uh, listen to what God does next, verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all of the night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water to their right and one to their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He made the wheels of their chariots come off so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, Let's... Get away from the Israelites, the Lord's fighting for them against Egypt. God's handiwork is all over this, and it wasn't just the parting of the waters. God sent a wind to dry the land so they wouldn't get stuck in the muck that would have been there after the waters divided. He threw the the Egyptians into confusion. Uh, Right before this section, it says that God also made there to be a cloud in between the Egyptians and the Israelites. And get this, on the Egyptian side of the cloud, it was dark. And on the Israelite side of the cloud, it was light, even though it was night, so that two million people could cross the Red Sea. And God rescued them. Now, you tell me, if, if our desire is to have God to be first place in our lives, if, if our desire is for God to be greater and for us to become lesser, if our desire is to give God the glory, was the dead end a good thing? The answer is obvious. Sometimes we need dead ends. Sometimes we need... A tree to the front, and shore to the left, and brush to the right, and an alligator running around. Just don't tell my dad that. Sometimes we need these dead ends because it's the only thing that can get our attention. We need to, re- we need to understand that we need a rescue and that we need to live, as God had said, to the glory of Him. Um, number four, fill in. Jesus is our rescuer. He is our rescuer. To him be the glory. And this leads us to the, the culmination of this parting of the Red Sea. So, about 1,500 years after this happened, uh, we run into Palm Sunday. And uh, Jesus, uh, God's son come to earth, marches, as we said before, to Jerusalem to die. And he had no prestige He had no power. He had no army. It looked like a dead end for the people that were seeing Jesus come. That he wasn't going to be the king they needed, okay? And so that's why they turned on him within five days. Hosannas, as you know, turned into, let's get rid of him. Let's execute him. He's not the king that we needed. It looked hopeless. But then, after Jesus died, he rose again. And we're going to talk a lot more about this next week. But through that death and resurrection in our behalf, there was a greater parting of the sea than what happened with Moses. That the sea of sin that separated us from the promised land, from God, was parted by Jesus' work in our behalf. And that, in fact, this was symbolized even on Good Friday when uh, the curtain in the temple tore in two. And now, this very special place in the temple where no one could go because God was there was now open for all people because of the blood of not lambs, but the blood of the Lamb. So, for those of you who are feeling boxed in by the circumstances of life, I want you to know this God can rescue you from them. And He either will or do something better for you and allow you to be cornered a little bit longer. And for those of you who feel boxed in by sin, either all the time or sometimes, (laughs) feeling like, you know, there's despair to the right of me and feelings of I'll never be good enough to the left of me and the the slavery of my past guilt charging at me from from the front, like the Israelites that day, Maybe it's time to turn around and to see that through Jesus and only through Him, the way has been opened through His blood, given to us free, freely through faith. Just a moment. our, uh, our musicians are going to play a, a song that uh, most of you have heard before, but it just fits so well with, uh, with our, um, our theme for today. So I just want you to listen to those words that you know and, and to consider God's great rescue for us. Uh, during that time, too, as that's sung, the ushers will be gathering our thank offering. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, um, we thank you for these uh, events in the Old Testament that weren't just there to give us some sort of moral truth, but we're we're meant to point us ahead to the the great work that your son would do. Lord, uh, many of us today may understand very well what it feels like to be boxed in, Uh, some of us by sin, some of us by circumstances. Lord, just help us to remember that you have given us this dead end for a reason, just like with the Israelites. And Lord, help us to see that reason. And even if you don't allow us to see what it is, help us to trust that there is one. And that through you, there is rescue. Either you're gonna take it away or you're gonna give us the strength to get through it. We pray all of this in Jesus' name.